Romans chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 1. Paul says, Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, some of your translations will say flesh, and we'll talk about that a lot more a little bit later on, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Alright? Paul uses an illustration here from marriage. And he says, now, remember, he's speaking to a, a, a church there in Rome who actually is made up of Jews and Gentiles. We've been seeing him talk back and forth between the different groups. When he says, I speak to those who know the law, who's he speaking to? Which groups? The Jews. Alright? He says, they all understand that a woman, if she marries another man while her husband's still alive, she's an adulteress. But if he dies... She's no longer bound by that law, if you will. She's free to marry another man. He said in a similar way, he said, we, remember we looked at last week, we died. The old us is gone. You are a new creation. We died to the old law. We are now free to marry another, if you will. Who are we married to now? Christ. And and it's very important you grasp this. So we're not, no longer, as he says here, we're no longer bound, you see in verse 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. The sad thing is, most Christians today are really kind of caught up on how well they're doing according to the law, or the written code. Are we not? Isn't Satan kind of a, a bum when he messes with us like that? We're more worried about whether or not we're doing it right, and we judge each other whether or not we're doing it right, when the Bible's very, very clear that actually God's not judging us anymore according to whether we do it right or wrong according to the law. He has given us righteousness because of Jesus Christ. And what he's wanting us to do, as we've been talking about now, is learn how to live in this new life. As we talked about before, when a baby is born, it has been given a new life. It needs to learn how to live in this new life. We need to learn the same thing. The problem is, most of us try to serve the new master, if you will, Jesus, in the same way in which we serve the old master, which was what? Give me my checklist. Give me my checklist. So what I want you to do is I want you to put a bookmark here and go to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to take a look at a long section uh, here in Colossians 2 that I think will actually illustrate this really, really well. And I want to take some time for you to really take a look at some things that Paul says here. um, Because it was in doing this study that I came to be really excited about something that God has done that I had never seen in this light before. Alright? So... Colossians chapter 2. Somebody read for us verses 6 uh, through through 8. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him, 
and established in your faith, just as you were instructed to overflow with gratitude. See to it that, you, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Alright. So you're saying, don't let anybody take you captive by human tradition, philosophies of man, rather, we're to be following Christ. How many of you grew up in an age when playing cards was a sin? Remember that? I was taught that. You were taught that, yeah. I remember I was taught that as well, that playing cards was a sin. For those of you that read the Bible, does it say anywhere that playing cards is a sin? No. Well, what is that then? Man. Might be a man rule and a human tradition, is it not? Now, we're going to get to, when we get to chapter 14, down the road, that there are going to be those who, I'm just not comfortable with that, and the Bible deals with those who think eating meat is okay, and some only can eat vegetables, and one considers one day more sacred than another, and another thinks every day is alike, and each day to be fully convinced in their own mind. We will get to that in time. What I really want to do right now is, from this passage, as we're going to keep reading, show you that a lot of the things that we grew up being taught, actually, in the scripture here, were never true. But we have been taught, as Christians, that God is judging us on how well we're doing according to the written code. And that's not it. That's not what it's about. Alright? Look at verse 9 now, what it says. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, we'll get this last time, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and raised with him through your faith, in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Now, real quickly, before I go any further, when Jesus walked on the earth, were there a group of people that seemed to be always following him around, measuring whether or not he was keeping the law? Who were they? Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees. And it's always been interesting to me. You know, have you ever really taken the time to go look, and I've never done this, and I'm tempted to do it, go look at all the miracles that Jesus did. There seems to be, at least the ones that are recorded, seem to mostly happen on one day. The Sabbath. You ever notice that? He does a lot of miracles. But it almost like 80% of the time, he does it on the Sabbath. Why? Pharisees were there watching. Yeah, his father was always at work, first of all, definitely. But keep going, what were you saying? Pharisees were there watching. Yeah. He's trying to teach them something. Now, did Jesus break the law? No. No, no. No, in their eyes he did. But the scripture says he fulfilled it to the letter. Yet at the same time, there's an interesting story one time when Jesus and his disciples are walking through this grain field. So you picture the disciples walking through this grain field with the grains growing up head high, and they take some of the grain, they roll it in their hands, blow away the chaff, then they eat some of the grain. All of a sudden, the Pharisees have a fit because these guys have just harvested, winnowed, and prepared a meal on the Saturday. But then it hit me one day. They had to be in the grain field too. Yeah. These guys are following them around, mm-hmm. trying to determine whether or not they're keeping the law, whether they're doing it right or wrong. 
And to be honest, let's be really honest, I, I know for myself, I've always felt God was that way too. He was always watching to see whether or not I kept the law. And when you really start to understand who you are in Christ and how God sees us, how He views us, you'll realize that actually, a lot of the times, I actually come to realize, I believe God's going to save me one day, Jim, you made it a whole lot harder than I ever intended it to be. Remember He said, my yoke is coming to you if you were weary and heavy laden. How can you rest? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Yet most Christians today, and I was in that group for a long time, we would honestly have to admit that we see ourselves probably more like the third servant in the parable of the talents, who responded to the master, I saw you as a hard man. And I have to be honest with you, I, I'm serving God, and, and, I, and, and I say I love God, but I'll be honest with you, I was more afraid of God, even though I thank God for my salvation, I know I was going to heaven, but I saw him as a hard man, measuring whether I did good or bad. I spent most of my Christian years confessing the fact that I didn't do it right and promising to do better. And it wasn't until I really came to understand who I am in Christ and the fact that how he wants to live his life through me and I cannot live the Christian life that these passages really started to come to life. We're now not being judged on whether or not we keep the human traditions or the law in that sense, but we're rather being, we're being judged, if you will, on our relationship with Christ. And actually it talks about, when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, which we may deal with later on, but not tonight, how we're going to be judged by what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. Now for years people have gone, ooh, good or bad, that's gonna, there's a lot of bad. No, the better translation of that word bad is actually rubbish. Whether or not you allowed Christ to do through you things that were of a lasting eternal value, or whether or not you didn't and it all burnt up. Not bad in the sense of, well, you did bad there, you're going to, you know, it's like, God, give you a reward, okay, uh, Sue, you did good here, I'll give you five nickels, uh, but here you did bad, give me a couple back. It's not like that. He's going to judge on whether or not we allowed him to live his life through us, and then we'll be rewarded for what was done in the body, whether it had eternal value or it was rubbish. I am now starting to amass a lot more of things of eternal value that stop trying to do them. And I'm letting Jesus do it through me. As we keep reading, though, look at what it says here. Verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with his regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore... Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a what? Now, I'm stopping here for a reason. Those of us that grew up in the church, were we not told that Sunday was the Sabbath, and that it was a holy day, and we... What were some of the rules? You weren't allowed to go to what? You can't go to the movies on the Sabbath. You can't do that. What are some other things you were talking about? You couldn't go shopping. No eating out. No eating out. Eating out on the Sabbath was because you were making somebody work on the Sabbath. You had to go to church in your Sunday best. Uh Uh-huh. I wasn't allowed to read the funny papers on Sunday. Because... Those are the colored ones. <laughs> well, we weren't allowed to read the color, the funny thing, until after church. And then on Sundays afternoons, Sunday afternoons, we were allowed to play, but only if it was a quiet game. 
course, not that any of those things are bad. It's like, we were they're not helpful. I mean, well, the scripture clearly even says, don't let anybody judge you on whether or not you keep a Sabbath day. Now, if I've done a full study on this, come to realize, first of all, the Sabbath was not intended for the Gentiles anyway. It was never something that God intended for the church. If you really do a study of the Sabbath, you'll find that it was actually between the nation of Israel and God and just them alone. We've already touched on last week about how God gave him the covenant of circumcision, but you couldn't go flashing your circumcision around to show everybody that you were, you and his people, right? Some might have, but you weren't supposed to. But, but here's the thing. He set up another outward way of showing that they were his people, and he did set up the Sabbath. What unfortunately happened, though, was the, the teachers of the law started to add to, well, here's how you keep the Sabbath. And they actually came up with almost 300 and something laws to, de- to, de- to describe how, to, how you would be breaking it. For example, you're allowed to tie a knot on the Sabbath day as long as you could be untied with one hand. If that knot could not be untied with one hand, you couldn't tie that knot on the Sabbath day. It was work. Well, those Pharisees shouldn't have been walking, should they? Well, they, they, and here's the point. The, the, on the Sabbath day, you're allowed to take so many steps, and that was it, because at a certain point, it became work. But what they would do, the, the Sabbath law that they had written said, you only allowed so many steps from your house. What they would do to kind of get around that was, is they would carry something with them from their house. Take those allotted steps, set down that piece of whatever it was, and say, this is from my house, so I'm still allowed to go. And they'd send a servant back to go pick it up. Well, well, the servant would go back and pick it up, and then, of course, walk the double distance or whatever, and then they set it down and... They, they were following around the well. We don't know. We don't know. I'm sorry, but it hurt. Even in Israel today, they have a Sabbath elevator. Yes, they do. They have a Sabbath elevator, and, and, and I'm not trying to be crude here, but it's just kind of funny. They actually, on Friday night, will tear off enough squares of toilet paper for what they think they'll need for Saturday because they're not allowed to tear a piece of toilet paper. On the Sabbath. Yeah, and so right. they will Friday night. That's yeah. not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm referring to the Jewish family, and as a nurse, they would have you turn the lights on and off. They would have you do whatever the little work thing was that they were not allowed to do. But surely they would do everything before 6 o'clock um, that Friday, Friday night, night and, and not do anything, right. basically, on Sunday. Um, now, if you remember from our study, though, the law was not so that we were to keep it. The law was to show us we couldn't keep it. Once you realize you couldn't keep it, the law had served its purpose. So let's keep reading now. All right? Verse 17. These, these things that we just talked about that people aren't supposed to judge us by, are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, I'm going to jump down to verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And if you're like me, folks, if you strove to be pure and holy and righteous according to the law, did it, did it make you better? Yeah. It didn't mean. 
And, and, and like I say, I'm not going to put myself up as better than anybody, but if there's anybody that strove to be perfect according to the law, I did. And I have striven in my life, I don't know, I might have already shared this with you, I mean, I was a virgin when I got married, I've never had a drop of alcohol, I've never, I've never had a cigarette, I've never had drugs, I have, I have striven to be pure. Yet, it didn't fix the struggle that was in me. Still, it wasn't restraining sensual indulgence, no matter how hard I tried. The reality, however, is found in who? Christ. Christ. And that's what Paul's going to be getting at. So if we go back now to Romans chapter 7, it will help us when we start to understand. He sets the foundation here, because we dealt with it today. Tonight we're going to deal with, why do I still struggle with sin then? If I'm a new creation and the old me's gone, why do I still struggle with sin? Well, Paul first laid the foundation of the fact that we've been set free from the law. You died with Christ. We're no longer bound by the law. God's not going to judge you on how well you did. He's now going to be looking at and working on your relationship, your interpersonal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, is he's going to reward you for what's done in the body? Yes. But what's only been done by and through Christ is what you'll be rewarded for. Alright? That's a big key to remember. Alright? So, with that in mind, somebody go ahead and read for us the next section here. Um, Actually, before we do that, I gotta, I gotta pull out the one thing I told you I was gonna share with you that God showed me that I've never really seen before. God called Paul to go preach to the Gentiles. Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Jew of Jews. And for, and for years, I've often thought, Lord, why did you use Paul? You know, why don't you send Peter, maybe? They didn't know Peter was a Jew. He's a little bit more rough and tumble. Maybe they sent Peter to go preach to the Gentiles. Why would you pick Paul, of all people, to preach to the Gentiles? And it hit me this week as I was studying this passage. Thank God he used Paul. Here's why. Because Paul is blowing up all the things that the Jews held on to. If it was being done by a non-real Jewish guy, or even a Jew that wasn't real good at the law, we would think that he was coming up with something different. Do you understand? Yet, God took, remember when he described himself in Philippians chapter 3, when it came to legalistic, you know, righteousness, faultless, and all this, God used a man who knew the law, who obeyed the law, who kept the law, to now teach, stop trying to keep the law. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. God used that kind of a guy to now write what we just read, that it's not the law, it's Jesus. If someone like me, who was a Gentile, were to come and say, it's not the law, it's Jesus, what would they say? Well, how do you know? How do you, know? You're, you don't even know anything about the law. Paul knows everything about the law. And God used the super Jew. I like that. He used the super Jew to preach to the Gentiles to further illustrate the fact that what we're looking at here is not heresy. It's not blasphemy. It's not coming up with a new religion. It is actually God using someone that knew it inside and out, and he opened their eyes to the fact of that was never his intention. Thank God he used Paul to go preach to the Gentiles. Thank God he used Paul to preach to the Gentiles. Someone go ahead and read for us the next section, verses 7 through 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known that uh, coveting really was, what coveting really was, if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, 
seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, the sin is dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that uh, I found that very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. One more verse. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become uh, utterly sinful. All right, Jeannie, could you explain that section to us, please? Uh, <laughs> all right, now, keep in mind, Paul has just laid the foundation that we are no longer bound by the law. We have been set free through our death with Christ Jesus. We've been risen to a new life now, which, remember, a righteousness apart from the law has been made known, which the prophets, law and the prophets testified, which comes from God through Jesus Christ. We are now married, bringing to new life, married with Jesus Christ. God is now looking at us through our relationship with Christ, and that's what he's looking at, not by how well we keep the law. With that in mind, though, Paul then realizes, he's okay, you might going to say now that law is sin, you know, I mean, is the law, law bad? And, and actually Paul says, no, 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 the law is not sin. He actually said the law is holy and good. But the sin which is in us uses the law to fuel more sin. In other words, I paraphrase it this way. Let me read the article. It says, we don't want anyone telling us how to live. And when the law says, thou shalt not, whatever, sin raises up even more to prove its independence. All right, I'm going to say it again. We don't want anybody telling us how to live. And when the law says you can't, Sin raises up even more to prove its independence. Alright? And, and what he's saying is, is this, the law is not bad, the law is not sin, but actually though, it just even more manifested what was already in us, which is sin. Our rebellious nature. Our rebellious nature and our sin. You better not do that, you say, oh yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's the whole point he's bringing out. He said, the law's not bad, the law's not sinful. I'm not saying we're no longer under law because the law's bad. But the law was just simply to show us, like we said, what was already there. Now, uh, we want to deal with this question. Um, Paul then asked, okay, did the law, which is good, put me to death? I mean, cause it, doesn't it read a little bit like he was saying that there? Uh, he, he goes... Uh, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law had said don't covet. But then sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. What do you mean by that? Apart from the law, sin is dead. You don't recognize it. Right? You don't recognize it. Right? If there's no speed limit, you don't know that going over a certain speed is breaking the law. Right. The sign's not posted. That's correct. Was there, if there's no law, do we sin? Yes. You don't know you're sinning, but you still sin. You sin, those without knowledge. But go with me real quick back to Romans chapter five. Yeah, yeah. See, and that's what we're going to deal with. 
You're going to see a word in some of your, some of your translations, and we're going to get to them in just a second. Look at Romans 5. Look at verses 12 through 14. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came to all men, because all sin. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. What, what is the penalty for sin? Death. 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 Did people die between the time of Adam and the time of Moses when the law came? Yeah. yeah. Why'd they die? Because of sin. They didn't realize that they were transgressing. See, this one, some of your translations will say when there, there's no transgression when there's no law. Right? That's a good translation, actually. Because... If I don't know that it's a law, and I do it, I don't know that I'm transgressing or stepping over a line, if you will, that has been drawn. There's no stepping over a line I don't know is there. But it doesn't mean that you don't have sin. Sin is still there. The law just shows you it's there. And there was still death. There was still death. Even though you didn't have a law, there was still death. But now, not, here's the part we got to understand, though. Not only does the law show us it's there, there's something about that sin nature that when we hear the law, it makes us want to do it even more, or, or against it even more. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't just point out that it's there, it fuels it even. Now, we've touched on this before, but I'm going to use the opportunity to illustrate this again and remind you of this. That's why a lot of you, when you first got saved, were on fire for the Lord. You were reading your Bibles, you were praying, you were telling other people about Jesus, man, you were just excited. Then over time, you started to lose your zeal, did you not? Mm-hmm. Part of the reason is this. The preachers and the teachers said, you need to read your Bible every day. You have to have a quiet time. And they, gave, they turned the automatic overflow of our joy into a law. And what does the law do to us? It makes us rebel. And now I don't want to do it as much as I used to want to do it. Oh, by the way, I have found that when God opened my eyes and showed me one day, He said, Jim, if you never read the Bible again, I will still love you just as much. And when that truth really sank in, I was trying to read the Bible again now, and I'm reading it 20 times as much as I ever did, but I'm not checking a box anymore whether or not I read my Bible today. I'm not checking a box whether or not I had my quiet time. I just... As I'm talking to him, I just want to go read some more or find something else. And it's now gone back to the joy instead of the duty. Remember the time the preachers said, have you quiet time today? Have you shared your faith? How many people have you told about? When we turn it into a law, the law fuels disobedience. Mm-hmm. You're about to say something or you just... Yeah, remember the time that you used to be on your door at the office? Okay. It was to be quiet. It was... Study time. Study time. That's right. Okay, I'm late. Whenever I I was doing some study or when I first used to take the radio in the the office, I put up a sign. And yeah, you just wanted to bang on the door, didn't you? Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say that um, not only does that foster us wanting to sin more just because of our rebellious nature, but Satan then uses it as guilt and shame to try to separate us and isolate us. I was talking to a friend of mine today who is really struggling with guilt. And she's trying to be a better Christian. 
And she just, every little thing is just piling on because she's trying to do better. She's trying to do better. She sees how she falls short. And it causes her to say, well, I, I can't go to church or if I do, i got to sit in the balcony and duck out real quick at the end or whatever. And it's just eating her up. It's heartbreaking. She doesn't understand who she is. And she's, she's in a culture where she doesn't have anyone else who can help her. Oh, you want to get ostracized, try and start teaching some of these truths in your church. Because yeah. when we even talk about the freedom in Christ, people start to panic. They say, whoa, wait a minute, are you saying that, that, that they're not gonna, we're not going to be judged by what we do or we don't? Well, the people, you don't take that, they're going to abuse it. I'll tell you this, it wouldn't be grace if it couldn't be abused. Well, people have been abusing it for how long? <laughs> yep. Does that change? It doesn't, doesn't change the truth. Go ahead. When I was reading this over and over, particularly those verses that we've just gone over, um, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond pure. Who can understand it? And I, I just kept reading that and thinking, is it a... Because I'm still questioning when it comes down to um, that sin nature that lives in us, that when it rears its ugly head, that why can't we have victory over it? You're trying to jump ahead. (laughs) (laughs) We will answer that question tonight. All right? We will answer that question tonight. But I'm glad you brought that up. That's a reminder to keep moving because we got a lot to cover here. All right? So keep in mind. All right? Did the, did the law make them guilty? Did the law make Paul guilty? Did the law cause Paul to sin? No. It just drew the line. Sin in us is what makes us step over. The law is holy. The law is good. The law is not a bad thing. You have to just understand God's purpose for the law. His whole purpose was just to show you you can't keep it. And, as we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, God gave us the law so that the trespass would increase. So it would manifest itself. So we would realize what's really there. Okay? And that's the whole point. That's what we want to get at. Alright? Now, let's move on then. Chapter 7, verses 14 is the end of the chapter. I'm going to read it for us, and then we're going to take some time to really break this down. Because this is the key part we've been waiting to get to is it anyway. But I want to point out now, though, as well, that you're also going to notice that Paul has changed tense, if you will. Alright? He's been talking in the past tense. He's now talking in the future, the present tense. There's been a debate over the years as to was Paul, in the section we're about to read here, was he talking about his lost condition coming to salvation? Was he talking about a, a carnal Christian, if you will, someone who doesn't really understand their relationship with Christ? and living the way they're not supposed to? Or was Paul actually talking about his own personal relationship and his own struggle with sin, knowing full well who he was? And honestly, the last one is what most theologians, and I myself am in that category, I believe that Paul is literally talking about his own personal struggle, knowing who he is in Christ. And if you pay close attention looking at it that way, you're going to find some really exciting good news. In this section, alright? Paul then says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law, or agree that the law is good. As it is, now look closely at the next words here, it is no longer 
I, myself, who do it. But it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer, again, you see it again, it's no longer. It's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. But in the sinful nature, now a lot of your translations have said the flesh, a slave to the law of sin. Alright, so we're going to take some time to really break this down. But what I want you to hear in this summation of it is simply this. Paul has already been laying the foundation for us that you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old you is gone. You're not have, you don't have an evil twin. Alright? You're not struggling against your old you. Your old you is gone. But, when you got saved, as we've talked about before, your human body was not affected. It was not redeemed yet. It's not going to be redeemed till the rapture when you get your new body. If you're alive at that time, your new body's, you're going to, your old body is going to be transformed into your new body. And your body will be redeemed. And that will happen, as we're going to see in chapter 8 coming up next week or so, at the rapture of the redemption of our bodies, the adoption of as sons. Paul said... The things he wants to do, he doesn't do. The things he doesn't want to do, that he does. And he's in that same struggle. And I'll be honest with you folks, thank God that he wrote this. Because otherwise, I even more feel like a failure. Because I have these same struggles. And I know you all do too. If anybody sits here and says, well, I don't have that problem, then you have a real problem and it's called lying. Alright? We all struggle with this. But the big key for me to start experiencing victory was not to try harder to fix this, but was to come to a realization that apart from Christ himself giving me the victory, I never could. Now, if I were to say to you right now, don't think of a pink elephant, don't right now, do not even picture a pink elephant in your mind, you're fighting with everything you can, but your brain starts to think of a pink elephant. What we do, though, in the same way is when we try on our own to fight against sin, we say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to. And we put our focus where? On the sin. Paul says, it's no longer I who is doing this. Now, I'm going to take some time real quick to point this out. And this is something Shannon touched on last week. When we sin now as a new creation in Christ, you're doing something that is against your nature. We hear too many people say, I'm a sinner. When they're Christians, you're not a sinner. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ who still sins. But you're not a sinner. That part of you is gone. And when you sin, you first have to understand it's against your nature. Now, I went through this one study with a pastor named Steve McVeigh called Grace Walk, and in his work, workbook, Grace Walk Experience, he spent a long time dealing with the fact that we, we hate our sin. And I actually had a hard time with that, and I was like, well, I'm not sure I agree. 
Because if I hated my sin, why would I keep doing it so much? But then he brought, out, brought this out. If we really loved our sin, it wouldn't give us a problem when we did it. So deep down, we really do hate our sin. All right? That's why so many times people will avoid you if they know you're a believer. Because they know you're going to see things that they're doing. They want to hide it. If it's okay, then why hide it? Right. So here's the thing. Don't let Satan, first of all, convince you that you love your sin. Because if you loved it, you wouldn't have a problem with it. Right? If you really loved it, you wouldn't have a problem with it. But the fact that you struggle with it doesn't mean you love it. But Satan will come in and say, well, you're really not a real good follower of Christ because you really love this sin that you keep falling into over and over. You don't. Otherwise, you wouldn't have an issue. So now, alright, I hate this sin. Why do I keep falling into it? Well, how many of you have been able to leave your body? Me neither. I'm trying. Yeah, me neither. Now imagine, imagine you had a football game. Your team's in the huddle. But someone from the opposing team keeps sneaking into the huddle. He's going to be telling the, the opposing team about all your plays. Right? Well, Paul said, when I try to do good, who's right there with him? Evil. The sinful, the sinful nature, if you will, or the flesh or evil is right there with me. Folks, you got an enemy in the huddle all the time. And if you say to yourself, well, I'm just not going to let him win, good luck with that. He's going to win. That's why Paul said, the things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, I don't. And then he came out with this exclamation, I can almost picture him writing it in all caps, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, we all know the answer. I mean, the answer is Jesus. But I want us to really think about the answer for a minute. Has Jesus ever been in a body like yours and mine? Has he been tempted like you and me? How do you do? So is there a chance that Jesus knows not only how, but has the power to have victory over your flesh. Amen. Where is Jesus? So maybe we need to take the time in those struggles to not think, I've got to do better and say no to this, but actually yield to the one who's within us and say, you've already licked the flesh. Sin has no power over you at all. This one's yours. I say, Jim, how do we do that? Well, before we get to that, go with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Someone read verses 14, 15, and 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, 
yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Alright, so let's start putting rubber to the road here. How do we apply this truth? Christ is in us. He's the only one that can have victory over this flesh. You can't, I can't. How do we yield to Him? You, give me some ideas. You could even be wrong. Just throw something out here. Go ahead. We put this word in our hearts so that at every moment when something comes up, first thing that happens, I can't have pity parties anymore. They used to last about 30 seconds. Now they're down to like two because scripture is in there now and when I start to feel sorry for myself, something pops up and it's really kind of frustrating. But, <laughs> but there's too much of him in there to let me feel sorry for myself myself. But you have a choice whether or not you're going to apply God's truth or whether or not you're going to not apply God's truth. I guess that's what it put it. I, was going, I, I do a lot of checking of church ministries and different places where I go speak and ran across this one website just recently and on, in their section of what we believe, they wrote this and it's the best I've ever seen it put. They said, Christian maturity comes by applying God's promises. How did you receive Christ as Savior? You, you believed. You asked Him to do it. And you trusted it would be done. Correct? That is how, remember Colossians 2.6, in the same way in which you received Jesus as Lord, walk in Him. Remember Jim, you just read that tonight. The way in which you received Him, walk in Him. Lord, here I am again tempted with the same struggle. And to be honest with you, Everything in me really wants to do it, whatever it is. I know it's sin. And on my own, I'm going to lose. I've lost enough to know I'm going to lose. Even if I win today, I'll lose tomorrow. You said you'd give me victory. I believe you will. Now, what's your responsibility? Say you're sitting at the computer and your temptation is to look at things on the computer you're not supposed to look at. Is your, is your responsibility to sit there and expect him to take it away? You, have, you walk away, but you walk away believing that he will do it. And you watch, folks. I'm talking with guys that have this struggle. When they learn to apply these truths, pretty soon the temptation itself even goes away. Now, I'm not saying it will go away forever and ever. Sometimes it will come back. But at the same time, all of a sudden, things that they used to think were really good, all of a sudden lost their appeal. You ever heard anybody say that right after they got saved, all of a sudden they used to be an alcoholic? All of a sudden they had no taste for drink anymore? Now God doesn't do that with everybody, but some people he has. How? Supernaturally, God made it so that it was no longer desirable. He can do the same thing with you and your struggles. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, God says, no, no temptation has taken you, but such is common to man. So whatever you're dealing with, other people have. So don't let Satan think you're the only one that struggles with it. The Bible actually says, confess your faults one to another and you'll be healed. There's actually some healing in actually confessing with some people we can know and trust. Here's where I struggle. Secondly, it says, God will not allow you to be tempted with more than you can bear. So keep in mind, whatever the struggle is, if you think it's going to whoop you every single time, you don't understand. The Bible says God wouldn't have allowed it if it was something you couldn't handle by His power. 
And the third part of that promise is, and with it he'll provide a way to escape. Do you all not realize that actually every time you're tempted, Satan has already had to go before your Heavenly Father and ask for permission to even tempt you? Did you know that? Take back to the book of Job. Satan could do nothing to Job until God allowed and God set the parameters. We also see in Luke 22, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Satan, I mean Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Well, why is Satan asking? Because Peter had already made his profession of his faith in Christ. He had already been given righteousness. Now Satan has to ask for permission to mess with Peter. Well, what did Jesus say? And I prayed for and I prayed for you. In other words, I let him. But I have a reason why I'm living. I'm going to teach you some things. I'm going to mature you through this in the same way. When you are tempted, keep in mind, I'm not the only one. God said he will not allow one that I'm able to, be, to bear by his grace. And thirdly, to provide a way to escape. Lord, you said you'd give me the victory. I believe that you will. Thank you that this isn't going to be a struggle for me. And when you walk away, I can't do any more than just tell you this is true. You'll have to experience it for yourself. But you will, I guarantee. Now go to another place. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I found another verse that I've been quoting for years. But actually, it wasn't until tonight, when I was looking over this section one more time, that all of a sudden, I saw this verse in a whole new light. You know how we read something forever and all of a sudden you see something you've never seen? I saw something tonight I have never, ever seen. I've been dying to tell you ever since I got here. We're almost there now. Look at what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, for years I've taught on this passage, and I've talked about taking every thought, matching it up to the filter of God's Word, and if it matches up with God's Word, you can keep it. If it doesn't, chuck it. Who's doing the work there? We are. I've been teaching everybody to do the work. But look closely what it says here, and I've never seen this. We take captive every thought. In other words, we stop it. And then do what? Look closely. And make it obedient to Christ. As I read that tonight, all of a sudden, my mind went to when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus. And the wind and the waves were stirring. And they went to him and they said, don't you care if we drown? And he got up and he did what? He rebuked the wind and the waves. He spoke and by his authority, what did the wind and the waves do? <coughs> exactly. And the disciples said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. That was scarier than the storm. That was scarier than the storm. But think about this. The power of Jesus to just... Remember, he just commanded the demons. They came out. Or they did whatever he said to do. We're to take every thought, the temptation, and we are to bring it to him. And he rebukes it. He's the one that it will listen to. Don't let keep saying, I rebuke you, Satan. There's a lot of guys out there saying, oh, you need to go and rebuke Satan. The Bible actually says in the book of Jude, when Michael was arguing with, uh, with, with, with Lucifer over the body of Moses and they don't even know why or what was really going on there, he didn't even say, 
I rebuke you. He said, the Lord. So there are those who take this truth, but then they'll say, well, I command you. Eh, I wouldn't go there, folks. That's not my authority. But I have within me the one who can. And what I'm to do is I'm to say, Lord, this is yours. Second, make it obedient to you. And God's saying, I've just been waiting for you to let me. But the only way you would ever learn this is to have you keep trying to fight it yourself. How's that been working out for you? I'm whooped. Now you're ready. Go ahead. The corollary of that is the in the Acts for the dudes, the demons say, Jesus, I know. All I know, man. I don't know who you are, and you're here for one unpleasant time. Right now. <laughs> that's for sure. So, that's right. Trying, anyone trying to do other, anything other than in the power of Christ through him is asking for trouble. That's right. Well, and the power right. that manifests itself. Well, exactly. People try to quote James where it says, Resist the devil and he'll flee. They left off the most important part. That verse doesn't start there where it says, Resist the devil. It starts with, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. You need to, when the temptation comes, take that thought captive, but don't you try to fix it. Don't you try to beat it. Hand it over to the one who can just speak the word, and that, because you know where it's coming from, right? The temptation is coming from the evil one and his minions. They'll be obedient to him. And I can, I can honestly tell you from personal experience, after years of certain struggles in certain areas, God has been giving victory, and I stopped trying to win. I believe God was going to do it, and it's gone away. Oh, and that's right. Not only praise God, I will be rewarded for it in the sense of what I did. I'll be rewarded, but it'll be what He did. I didn't know it. That's why we're able to lay our crowns at His feet in the book of Revelation, because everything will be rewarded for. He did. Exactly. That's why Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? How will I get this victory? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Oh, who, by the way, was already in a human body, tempted in every way in which we are, yet he licked the human body. He's the only one that could. Man never could, but he was more than man. Oh, and by the way, if you'll take it and hand it to him, he still will. He still will. All right? That's why, go to Romans chapter 8, we're just going to touch on this and then give you a taste for next week. That's why Paul's able to say, chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore, because of this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The battle is not whether or not you're keeping the law, folks. I'm going to be honest with you. I've come to realize, and you're going to think I'm saying some blasphemy here, but I'm not. I've come to realize in my Christian life, God has wanted me to fall in sin more. Why? So that I would realize that I couldn't defeat it. If I thought I could defeat it, I wasn't ever going to rely on Him. And I found that God sometimes lit me. In a sense, was glad that I fell to the sin. Why? Because I finally awoke to the fact of God, I've been trying for years, and I can't beat this. How come? Maybe I'm not saved. You ever had that one? Maybe I'm not the Christian I ought to be. What did Paul say here? Every time I try to do good, there's an enemy in the huddle. Oh, and by the way, your enemy's going to be in your huddle until he gives you a new body. 
So don't think because you're tempted that you're a bad person. We keep thinking, once I start living and walking with God, the temptation will go away. It will never go away until you get out of this body. Temptations will change. Temptations will change. Any questions before we kind of start wrapping this up here? Uh, what are we doing time wise here? That's great. We're doing good. Go ahead. Um, as, as you went through the study, what came up to me is because this is a study I'm doing in church is uh, the commandments be holy. Verse of holiness. And that's, that's something we are supposed to, I understand, we're supposed to make a conscious choice to do with everything that goes on in our lives. And that tends to get cloudy and muddy and confused by um, what you just said. Like there's something we got to do. There's something we got to take. My understanding is what we got to do is to say, okay, like what you said very, very concisely, hey, Lord, this is yours. That's kind of it, as simple as I can put it. And, and honestly, that's it. Because for years, I read that, be holy for I'm holy. Is God saying, oh, I'm here, Jim, and you're down here. Why don't you get up to where I am? Now I really read it the right way. God says, you are holy because I'm holy and I'm in you and you're in me. Live as you are. All right, Lord, you said you'd make me holy. Actually, it says I'm being made holy and I've been made holy in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to live like I am. And any holiness we could ever display is only because of God through us. It's not right. us doing it. Apart from Him. You were to pursue it, right? You were to pursue it. Well, the pursuit of it is Christ. Yeah. Live through me. Yes. That's it. And that's it. But it's a daily thing. That's why we've got to lay ourselves on the altar. But I love to hear you say that. That, that is awesome. Because that is it. Because for years we've tried to be more holy. We've even had the preacher say, you need to be more holy. Good luck with that. I was preaching at a church this past Sunday here in the area, and the pastor gets up, not knowing what I'm going to preach, and he says this. He said, I actually was on a, um, on a business trip. He's a bivocational pastor at this church. He said, I was on a business trip for my company, and Wednesday, uh, it just so happened that he was in Missouri, and behind the hotel was a church. So Wednesday night, he went to the church, and uh, the, the message was on holiness, and then... Uh, the, um, he, the, he found out Wednesday night there's going to be a men's Bible study on Thursday so Thursday night he went to the men's Bible study and they were doing a study on holiness and he said I've gotten so fired up he said starting next week I'm going to preach two messages on holiness well little did he know the message God had brought me to preach at that church was entitled Holy Dissatisfaction <laughs> and what I actually preached to them was God will get you to a place where you realize you can't do it. Not only for salvation, then you can be saved, but after salvation, I preach from John 21, where they go out to fish, and he says, you don't have any fish, do you? How's that working out for you? And he retaught the lesson from earlier, it's still me, not you. And I encourage them, I hope you guys have a great next two weeks looking at holiness, but you've got to hear this first. You can't be holy. Jesus will do it through you. And in pursuing it, we don't just sit back, you know, and just think, well, God's going to make me holy. We actively live, as he says, in obedience, but trusting that he's going to do it. It comes from the love relationship. You have to know that he loves you so much that even if you were the only one, he would have put his body on that cross for you. Why do you think we don't know it? I mean, the Bible's full of passages that talk about how much he loves us. Why do you think we don't know it? Because we think that we have to do something to earn it. That's it. And that it's great. It's free. And once you can get that through your mind, you can love him because of the love he's put in you. 
And you want to pursue it. You want to spend every minute with him. When you're out working in the yard and you feel a cool breeze, the first thing that comes to your mouth is, thank you for that. That felt fantastic. And you know it's a gift. You know? Let me give you an example from something that happened in our life today. I don't know if I look any different, but a major milestone happened in my life today. Becky's too, but I had to experience it because I was in the car. Nicole got her learner's permit today. <laughs> so I decided, let's bite the bullet. I didn't let her drive from the driver's license bureau. I thought those roads would be a little too tough to start with, but I took her to the office of one of the men on the board who takes care of the paperwork and took care of that. And I said, Nicole, you're driving home. And she drove from 4th Avenue in Indian Atlantic down Riverside all the way back to our house. And to be honest with you, she did really good until she got to O'Galley and she got to the police station there by the Yacht Club. And by the time we got to our driveway, she had already been in reverse while we were going forward still. And by the way, that makes a horrible, horrible noise. She had been driven on somebody's lawn. She was crying. It was a mess. The car's in our driveway, like, the driveway's like this. She is left like this, and we decide, let's just stop. And so, instead of turning the key off, she turns it forward again, and she goes into the house. I'm sorry, Daddy. And I said, honey, I'm not upset with you. I said, when I point things out, it's not because I'm upset. I'm just trying to help you see. And God spoke to my heart. And he said, you cannot let her finish like that. I back into the house. I said, Nicole, I need to talk to you out here for a second. She came out. She goes, well, I go, do you have your permit with you? She goes, no. I said, go get it. Why? I said, you're not going to finish like that. You're a better driver than this. We're going for a ride. She got back in the car, and we drove around the block. And it just so happened Becky and the other two kids were riding their bicycles, come back from the library, and they got to see her driving, and they were all excited, and she did good. And my heart was feeling much better because I wanted to know, look, I love you. I think you're awesome. I think you're going to do a great job. And I could not, could not let her finish the way she had. Because I didn't want her thinking she was a failure or that I was angry with her. You know what the old Jim would have thought? Because I thought that's how God was with me. I would have thought it would have been good for her to finish like that because now she'll know that's not how to drive. I have learned by accepting God's grace how to manifest grace. I just said, you're a better driver than this. Let's finish strong. I was able to love her. He is going to follow it through to completion. Yes. He said whatever he started, he'd finish. Yes, rest in it. Oh, by the way, once you really start to rest in it, you're going to drive lots of church members daddy. <laughs> you're going to drive lots of people who think they still got to earn God's acceptance. You're going to make them frustrated. But you know what? Just smile. I love them because you were there one day too. And pray that God opens their eyes. Pray that God opens their eyes. Jesus. And it is amazing. And I use this word because... Over the years, God has really hit that home with me. And somehow, if you do say it too much, it seems haughty. I mean, it's as though, because they don't understand. They, do, they don't understand that love. That and somehow you're experiencing. I couldn't have heard it until God opened my eyes either. To be honest with you. Well, and the reason I really think most of us don't 
fully recognize how much God loves us is that Satan's main focus oh, is yeah. to make us think that we are not loved in God's eyes. I mean, that we have to do something to earn it. What was the first lie, very first lie in the garden was, you know, if you'll take from this tree of knowledge and good, of good and evil, then you'll be like God. The very, very first. And they already were like God. Exactly. The very first was a lie. You're going to have to do something to look good to God. And he's still saying the same lie because he's not that creative. <laughs> hey, it's still working. Hey, broke, don't fix it. <laughs> and you know the, the story that you give us about uh, Nicole, really how precious that, that that is because over the years, the two of you exhibit God to her. I mean, that, in a way... We're doing better now. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing better now. We're letting him do it now. Really, all parents have that tremendous responsibility. Responsibility, because to them, as they're growing up, that's exactly the position that God has put you in and how precious that is. Thank you for sharing that story with us, Jim. My kids hate it, but anything they do is going to end up in the sermon. So. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, again, I thank you for this chance to open up your word. I thank you for the fact that there's a, a strong, sweet sense of your presence right now in this room. Thank you. Lord, I don't know what's going on in each of our lives. I don't know what kind of worries and fears or different things are happening or things that are coming down the road. And we definitely can see from the news things are coming down the road for the country as a whole anyway. But Lord, I just pray that each of us could honestly receive your love afresh and your mercies that are new every morning. And that we could learn to respond out of the joy of our salvation. Father, it's still hard for some of us to break free from some of the man's traditions and some of the ways that the law was kind of forced on us. And Lord, we sometimes still think that you're out to get us if we didn't have our quiet time. And Lord, may we begin to really accept your love. Everything from there will fall into place. So my prayer is for each of us that we'd be able to understand that when we struggle with sin, it's not because we're a bad person. <laughs> we're still in the flesh in that sense. But thanks be to God through Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much for the fact that you have done it and you want to do it again for us and give us the victory. Lord, none of us are going to be perfect, but there's so much more you want us to accomplish. And Lord, I'm learning now, you don't want the rest of our lives here on this earth spent just dealing with sin. And, and victory over sin. There's so much more you want to show us and accomplish through us. Yet most Christians today just spend all their energy and effort fighting sin. Move us on to bigger things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.